So we're, we're going to talk today about a heart like his. And I'm just telling this, oh, how the mighty have fallen. That'll make, that doesn't make any sense right now. It might make sense later on. We'll see if it does or not. Uh, but what is happening is Saul is dead. Saul has died in battle. And David has been waiting to become king. He's been anointed by Samuel when he was a 15-year-old boy. He was anointed by Samuel to become the king to replace Saul. And now, when he became from 15 years later, he's been running from Saul. And now, 12 to 15 years later, there's a little differentiation in the timeline, but 12 to 15 years later, uh, Saul dies. And so that paves the way then for him to become king, that Samuel anointed him to become king. He never tried to push Saul out. He never tried to take over the kingdom. Uh, He just tried to survive for 15 years. So this, this, uh, this Amalekite comes to David to give a report. He gives, he's giving a report and he brings the, the crown and the amulet of, uh, of Saul to say to David, uh, Saul is dead and, uh, he was dying and he asked me to finish him off and I finished him off. For that, uh, David killed him for, for bragging about it. And it was a lie. He didn't really do it, but that's what he, he was bragging about. David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David's running for his law, his law for his life, 15 years, narrow escape, 15 years on the run. 15 years of discomfort, misery, fear, depression, and he's also 15 years right in the middle of God's will. Did you get that? 15 years of misery, despair, fear, anxiety, depression, running, and he's also at the same, in those same 15 years, he's right in the middle of God's will. Why does God put his chosen people through so much? I think sometimes we think that I'm going to give my life to Jesus and all my problems will go away. And also a lot of people have the misconception that if I'm doing God's will, it will be easy. I mean, doesn't it seem, I mean, doesn't that seem like that's the easiest way if you're doing God's will? You see, the Christian life is not the easy way. It is the best way. There's a difference. There is an easy way, and there's the best way. So why, why is this so hard? For, for one thing, God is doing something that even David doesn't comprehend. This David's kingdom is the foundation for an eternal kingdom. David's throne is going to be the throne that Jesus sits on. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. This is the angel telling Mary what's going to happen. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, 
And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. This is different because it's not a temporal, temporary, earthly kingdom. Something is being built here. And David is the beginning of it, the beginning of the promise in David, not because of David, but by God. By God, he is establishing an eternal kingdom built upon the lineage of David, the promise to David. So when you don't understand the timeline of what's going on in your life, because here's what you got to get. God is not on your timeline. You are on God's timeline. And God's timeline is timeless. It's eternal. God's timeline doesn't just start here and, you know, it's, you know, we, we, when we think of infinity, we think of a point, you know, a line with an arrow on both ends that's described infinity. That doesn't even inscribe, describe eternity. That just describes time going backwards and time going forwards. But God, God's not limited by time. God created time. God exists outside of time. So, so God is not bound by the restrictions of time. So what we have to always wrap our mind around is that God is doing something more always. God is always doing more than now and today. God is doing more than just working to make you happy. Another fun sermon from Randy Hewitt. What's God doing? God is working to make you holy. God is working to make you righteous. God is preparing you for the greater work of eternity. This is just the beginnings. This is is the warm-up. This isn't the game. This isn't isn't it. This is the the small, you know, the small. Jesus said life is like a vapor. It's like it's like fog on the mirror in the bathroom, and it, it's gone in an instant. God is working in you and through you to do more than you can imagine. He's working to do eternal things. David didn't understand what he was doing. David didn't know what was going on. He didn't see the eternity beyond this. He, I mean, he believed you know, that he was going to have this kingdom, and his kingdom was going to rule, and people, his lineage was going to sit on the throne. He didn't get all of this, maybe pieces of it. God's doing things beyond what you and I comprehend, and we won't comprehend it until eternity. God's going to accomplish some great things through you. And then you think, well, David must be really excited. I mean, think about it. Okay, 15 years is over. 15 years of of running and uh, living out of a suitcase, misery, hiding, wondering where your next meal is going to come from, wondering if you're going to live the next day. Trusting God, but still struggling day after day after day after day. Not a year, not two years, not three years, 15 years. That's the kind of stuff that makes people crazy. And he doesn't know this, but he's going to become the king of Judah, which is his tribe. But the rest of Israel is not going to make him king for another seven years. So he's had 15 years. He doesn't know it. He's got seven more years of the promise not fully fulfilled yet. 
you know. So are his troubles and difficulties finally over? No, they're not. Now, what we're going to see is a change. Is from here, most of David's troubles have been caused by Saul. For the rest of his life, most of David's troubles are going to be caused by David. But he's, his troubles aren't over. And we often, we often we say things like this. Will this be the season of my life where I don't have trouble? No. It won't be. Jesus said this, John 16, I'm sure you've heard this. These things, he's talking about the promises, uh, you know, that he's with us and he loves us and he's given us the Holy Spirit. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. He said, there's not a break in the trouble. Right? He says, in the world you will have trouble. So don't seek a break from the trouble. Seek him. Because he says, in the world you will have trouble, but in me you will have peace. You don't have peace because you have a break in the trouble. You have peace because you are hiding yourself in him. It's good preaching. Amen. Yeah, it really is. So then this is David's response. 2 Samuel 1.11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so also did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. I mean, you'd almost be thinking he'd be, the, be doing the dance of joy, right? I mean, Saul's been trying to kill me and Saul is dead. And then he, then he, he, he gives this song. It's called the Song of the Bow. And he writes this song, and he disperses it throughout Israel. This is a song that's gonna, that he wants everybody to know. Then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Yeshur. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. O mountains of Gilboa, let not do a rain be on you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life and in their death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. 
How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. This is not homosexual. That's not what this is saying. He's saying, we have fought to battle. We have fought together, and our kinship is brothers. The covenants that we've made together, our relationship is greater than my relationship with women. And just to throw this out there, women had, David had lousy relationships with women. He had eight wives eventually. A bunch of porcupines. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? Now, what's clear, this is David. David is spontaneously writing this. He's He's one of the great songwriters of all times. It's We read his songs. So David spontaneously writes this song about Saul and Jonathan. And it's evident, it's evident that David loved both Saul who was trying to kill him and Jonathan who had made a covenant with him as his friend. Although Saul was trying to kill him for 15 years David didn't let Saul's attitude about David determine his attitude of Saul. I want you to get that because it's really powerful. David didn't let Saul's attitude of him determine his attitude towards Saul. Are you letting other people's actions determine your attitude? Your attitude about other people is not dependent on them. Whether you have bitterness in your heart or unforgiveness in your heart doesn't depend on what they did. It's all about how you've chosen to respond to the painful things they've done. Saul did horrible things to David. He could have easily had bitterness. But it's apparent from the Psalms that David was continually processing that. He was continually giving that to God. He was talking about it. Oh, my enemies are trying to kill me. Oh, God, get them. Oh, but God, my trust is in you. And over and over again, he's processing this attitude. So how did, how did David, <laughs> I'm telling you, 15 years is a long time to be in a difficulty. Isn't it? So how, do we, how did David do it? How did he keep that kind of attitude? David didn't let despair get a hold of him. Because despair wants to get a hold of you. Depression, anxiety, fear, worry, despair, whatever you want to call it. Psalm 13, 11. Listen how, listen how David is crying out to God. How long, O Lord? How much longer, God? I mean, how long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I mean, like, answer my prayers for goodness sake. Give me some relief 
for goodness sake. Give me some, give me an answer. How long will it take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, uh, overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I'm shaken. But, but, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. But my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. But I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, you see what he did? David is in despair and he praised and prayed his way out of it. He's totally honest with God. God, I'm a little ticked off. You're disappointing me. God, you're not listening. Oh God, I've been praying. I'm not getting any answers. Why don't you answer me? Why don't you tell me something? Nothing's happening. Nothing's getting better. It's the same song, second verse. Run from Saul, barely escape. Run from Saul, barely escape. Someday he's going to get me, God. You agree with that? He agrees with that. He's honest with God. He's honest with himself. He's in despair. Then what did he do? He turned the focus from himself to God. He turned the focus from his despair and his anxiety and his fear and his frustration and the fact that he, he feels like God has forgotten him. And then he says, God, it feels like God has forgotten me, but I'm going to remember what God's done for me. But I have trusted your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You know, you know what he could have said? Not dead yet. I'm not dead. This is a song I'm going to sing. I've been nearly dead a bunch of times, but I'm not dead yet. God keeps coming through. He turned the focus from himself and, his, and his, what he's feeling He's honest about it. He tells God about it. He doesn't try to hide it. He's honest about what he's feeling, but after declaring his feelings, then he turns those feelings and says, but I'm going to declare the goodness of God. Instead of focusing on this, I'm going to focus on how good God has been to me. His loving kindness. Has God been good to you at all? He held on to the rock of his salvation. Psalm 18, 1. Verse 1. Now, this is the heading that's over this psalm. For the choir director. A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said... I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. 
I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Again, what's he doing? He's focusing on what God has done for him. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my fortress. He says, I've been hiding in rocks. I've been hiding in caves. But in reality, the Lord is my rock. You get paychecks and you get money, but who's really your source? God's your source. Who's really taking care of you? The Lord. So he's in the midst of despair. He's always throwing himself on the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the mercy of God and the love of God and the faithfulness of God. He's honest about his despair. He's honest about his fears, but he always comes with a but. (laughs) But the Lord. Paul says that. He says, you know, everybody left me. Everybody abandoned me. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Depending upon the Lord. How do we do it? How do we do it? How do we do it? We have to get a hold of the anchor. Because we're in a storm. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19. It says, it's talking about God's promise to Abraham. God makes this promise to Abraham, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. That's one thing. It's two unchangeable things. It's impossible for God to lie. He who has taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. For Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Confused yet? So he's saying to them, he's saying to the Hebrews, don't quit. Hang on. Persevere. Get a hold of something. Get a hold of, get a hold of your hope in God. When persecution is, is hard, when times are difficult, get a hold of the promise in God. Get a hold of something. Get a hold of the promise. Get a hold of hope. He says, don't despair. David says, don't despair. Put your trust in God. Put your focus on God. And then Paul, or the writer of the Hebrews, probably Barnabas, says, get a hold of something. Get a hold of something. Get a hold of hope. It's two things to get a hold of. One is that God made a promise. The first thing is that God made a promise. The second thing is that God cannot lie. So God made a promise. God cannot lie. That gives us hope. It gives us hope because God's made a promise and God cannot lie. We have hope because our God tells the truth. God is for us. Who can be against us? He who began a good work in you will finish it. So God cannot lie. He's made a promise and he's going to fulfill it. Then we have this hope as an anchor of the soul. This hope, this hope that God has made a promise and God's going to fulfill it. Can't lie. God's made a promise. 
God's going to keep it because he can't lie. That gives us hope. It gives us an anchor. It's an anchor for the soul because is there a storm coming? Yes. If, if you're not in one now, get ready because that's just life. If you're expecting that life is going to be no trouble, you're going to be frustrated and angry all the time. Life is trouble. Jesus said, in the world you'll have trouble. Be a good cheer. I've overcome the world. In me you'll have peace. It's not the lack of trouble. We find our peace in Christ. So this, this, this hope, this hope anchors us. It gets a hold of us. It gives us something to hold on to. I'm hoping in Christ. My hope is in God. I'm in the midst of a storm. The winds are blowing. I'm afraid the boat's going to go down. But I'm going to hold on to Christ. I'm going to hold on to the truth that God, he's made a promise and he's going to do it. He's made a promise, it's impossible for him to lie. He's made a promise, it's impossible for him to lie. If he said it, he's going to do it. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to do it. I wish he would have done it yesterday. But if he doesn't do it tomorrow, he's going to do it in eternity. He is going to finish the work that he started. He's going to drag you into heaven. Clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So here's what it says. This hope we have, let me go back. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. So in the temple... There is the holy place, and in the holy place, in the Old Testament temple, and in the one in heaven, the real one in heaven, the copy on earth, there is a holy place. On the, on the holy place, there's a, the table for the showbread. We've talked about the showbread. David ate the showbread that he wasn't supposed to eat, but the priest let him eat the showbread. There was... There was... <laughs> A curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of and represents the presence of the Lord. Now, the, the, the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies was about a foot thick. And it didn't have any holes in it. And the priest had to go from the holy place into the holy of holies to offer sacrifice. And there's no way in there. Now, some say that the priest when he was prepared and ready and had made all preparations and was sanctified and ready to make sacrifice for the people, that he would enter into the holy place and stand before the curtain and God would move him through the curtain into the holy place. In other words, it was an act of God. It was something that only God could do. There was no way for you to... You know, you couldn't open, the curtain was not manageable. 
But when Jesus came and Jesus died on the cross, one of the things that happened is that the veil in the temple was torn. I don't think, I don't think a man can tear a one foot thick curtain, but the veil was torn. And the scripture is clear to say it was torn from the top to the bottom. Now, because of that, what this says is that now Jesus has entered into the, into the holy place. The curtain is torn. It's like, and he says, and he's entered within the veil. I'm going to read it, make sure I say it right. For Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I'm not even going to go into all that. That's a whole other sermon right there. But what Jesus does is that he enters into the holy place, to, to the presence of God, the unmeasured, un unmetered, unfiltered presence of God, the, the, the holy of holies, the very reality of God, the, the, the representation of the, all that God is. So Jesus enters into the curtain as the forerunner. And he goes like this. He pushes the curtain aside and he motions back to us and says, come on. Come on. He made the way. He's the forerunner. Which is to say, there's only one answer to your troubles. It's Jesus. It's not that your troubles are going to go away tomorrow at 3 o'clock. They will not. And if they do, you'll get a whole nother batch. <laughs> but what it does mean is that Jesus is with you in the trouble. And he's invited us into the, the very best place we can be in the midst of our troubles to be in him. To be in his presence to be received, to be his children, to be loved, to be chosen, to be his, to be called, to belong, to have a hold of the promise that he has spoken it and he's going to do it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Some of you are in the midst of real trouble today. I understand that. You've gone through some very difficult times, and you're in some very difficult times. The best thing I can tell you is that God's with you. Jesus provided the way. Jesus prepared the way so that you could experience the reality of the presence of God. The answer is not an end to problems. The answer is Jesus. And finding it in him. Father, we want to find our fullness. Not because things are going easy. Not because things are going well. Not because every problem is solved and we've got enough money in the bank. We've got a job that's going to meet all of our needs. But we want to find our peace. Not in the absence of all these things. But in the presence of the reality of Jesus in our life. The answer is you. And being in you. And trusting in you. 
And Lord, we like David struggle. And we say, Lord, how long? How long? But, but I've seen the loving kindness of the Lord. But I've seen the goodness of the Lord, and I will sing his praises. Lord, help me worship and pray my way out of my despair because I've put my trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.